programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the John Wesley Powell River History Museum in Green River, presenting the exhibit Glen Canyon, a River Guide Remembers, which recalls lost landscape and canyon characters. Inspired by Utah environmentalist Ken Slight. Details at glencanyonexhibit.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Stacked Quality Pancakes. Featuring made-to-order pancakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner Monday through Thursday. Open till 11 on Friday and Saturday. Located in historic downtown Logan at 31 North Main. Menu available at stacked-pancakes.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 123 people die of suicide every day in the U.S. It's the 10th leading cause of death for Americans, the number two killer of teens. According to a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, every state but Nevada saw increases in the rates of suicide between 1999 and 2016. And Utah's suicide rate for all ages is more than 60% above the national average. Recent celebrity deaths have also shown a spotlight on this problem. We're going to talk about it today. Uh, Later in the program, Craig Bryan, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah, will join us. We begin with a conversation with Jane Pearson, a suicide research expert at the National Institute of Mental Health in Maryland. Well, undoubtedly, you're aware of the uh, the new report out from Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, suicide rates between 1999 and 2016 up in every state but Nevada, including here in Utah. Right. Uh, Utah is the fifth highest overall suicide rate at 25.2 uh, per 100,000, uh, 46.5% increase in residents taking their own lives. Uh, this uh, a growing problem, I guess, and, and I guess the, the first question is why? Can we identify any particular reason? Yeah, that is the big question. <laughs> um, I guess it hasn't, like, jumped up. It's been this gradual growing trend, and I think uh, a number of us were hoping after the recession that as you know the country recovered, we'd probably be doing a little bit better on the suicide rates, but that hasn't happened. Um, it could have been worse, of course, if the I think if the recession had gone on longer and the recovery hadn't happened. But it's really making us try to look closer, and I think some of the recent reports is trying to look at, you know, where have things gone up the most. So in the reports that came out, you'll see, you know, differences across states. And the Mountain West has traditionally had higher rates, um, Nevada being this interesting exception right now, and unfortunately seeing the most growth. So it does, it starts raising a lot of questions. Um, and I think the press has gone to some of those issues being, is it access to mental health? Um, we also know in the same report that, you know, about half of the people didn't have a mental disorder, but that means they didn't have a diagnosed disorder, which means you've had to have been to health care probably talked about suicide or a mental health problem and then got the diagnosis. So we're guessing the people who don't have those mental health issues, some of them probably do have a diagnosis. But um, we also know that people can respond to, you know, stressful events. It's usually just not the stressful event itself, but it can seem like that's what's um, the precipitating event. So um, so mental health, I mean, we... We go to mental health. Is that 
uh, maybe with a few exceptions, pretty much a unifying factor. You, you mentioned the economy, economic downturn. Uh, do we see suicide rates go up with economic downturns? Uh, uh, some have mentioned the you know, uh, opioid crisis and, uh, and uh, right. substance abuse problems. Is it all of the, all of the above? Are there any, any one factors that we can home in on and, and, and try to help with prevention? Well, I think um, what the report shows is, you know, some concentration in states, as I mentioned, and you're absolutely right. We've seen the opioid overdoses, both intentional and unintentional, going up along with the suicide rate. And some people, you know, have questioned are some of those accidental or unintentional opioid overdoses actual suicides. And a number of researchers have just said, you know, if you're dead, you're dead. doesn't matter if, how much intent you might have explicitly had. Did you want to get high and not wake up? Would you call that, you know, suicide? The problem is likely due to some common risk factors, but that's something we really need to look at. And um, we're very interested in working with, you know, the National Institute of Drug Abuse and the Alcohol Institute because alcohol is often involved um, in a lot of suicides with opioids. So we're actually working hard to figure out how we can understand this a little bit better in terms of a person's trajectory, if you will. You know, when do problems start? When could we have intervened? If we could have intervened on their substance use problem earlier, would that have reduced the risk for suicide? Probably. We've got some studies that would suggest, especially in um, teen years and, you know, even preteen years, if we could prevent some kids from starting substance use, we probably can also prevent their suicidal behavior. Hmm. There were, um, there, there's been some efforts here in Utah. Um, you know, Doug Gray was uh, headed up some, uh, uh, you know, a study, and Utah did uh, put some money into one of the factors that he um, recognized, identified, which was uh, putting some money into uh, young men who came in contact with the juvenile justice uh, system that seemed to have some some good effect. Yeah, that was a really important study. Um, Doug's work was one of the first studies to really show, at least in Utah, how uh, once you get into certain types of systems, you your risk can go up for a number of reasons. And I think um, if you think about what happens, especially to youth who have to enter the justice system, they they were already in trouble to get there. <laughs> And those systems are not always so therapeutic as we would like. They're not really supportive. These kids are getting disconnected from their families. And I think um, some of the work in terms of the intervention showed some benefit, but I think if you could do work even earlier than that, you know, helping kids before they enter the justice system, of course, you know, we all think that would be the best approach. So it was really important research to understand that trajectory for kids. So we would start thinking about this a little bit earlier. And, you know, we've attempted to get researchers to look in that direction, and we'd like to see more research in that area. Hmm. You mentioned uh, suicide rates higher in the Mountain West. Do we have any theories as to why? Um, there's been a number of theories. There's basic kind of, um, I don't know how to, I wouldn't say it's theoretical, it's just, Sort of a matter of fact, if you can get, if you've attempted suicide and you can get to care quickly, your chances of living are better. So if there's fewer, um, like acute care or uh, trauma care centers that people can get access to, 
just the absolute survival rates lower. Um, so you could actually have an area that has more attempts but has a better healthcare system to keep people alive and a, another place that has fewer attempts but because there's no help, people die. They can't get the help they want. And then also the method um, sometimes affects people's ability or their likelihood of living. So firearms are one of the more deadly approaches to um, killing yourself. Hanging um, and then overdose is less likely depending on how you can be rescued. And that's, of course, part of the opioid challenge right now where fentanyl um, can act very quickly and it's hard to intervene with. So understanding all those pieces and then putting that on top of a, a geographic kind of area and understanding access to um, types of life-preserving care and what are the typical means in those areas starts to help us understand some of those patterns. We also know from kind of sociology that, you know, people will be finding places to live that suit how they think about themselves and society. So if you want to go to a place and take care of yourself and not want a lot of services from government, you might head to those places. And because of that, you might have this attitude of, I'm going to take care of everything myself, and um, that might involve increased suicide risk. Um, reading a uh, story in the Salt Lake Tribune, um, this article quotes Nadine Kaslow, past president of American Psychological Association. She says, at what point is it a crisis? Talking about suicides. She goes on to say, suicide is a public health crisis when you look at the numbers, and they keep going up. It's everywhere. And we know the rates are actually higher than what's reported. But homicides still get more attention. Um, should, should we call this a crisis? Would would that help get uh, get resources? I don't know. Is it a crisis? I guess to start there. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you kind of two answers. It's the tenth leading cause of death in the U.S., and you've already spoken about the numbers in Utah and how it's going up. So to me, uh, you know, if you want to call it a crisis to pay more attention to it, to get a better idea of what's going on, better surveillance, and also understand it, yes, that would be very helpful <laughs> to move that ahead. On the other hand, we've been asking the press, to be careful about how they report suicide because there is real contagion um, that can happen for, depending on how you report on suicide. So I think in some ways um, the press has sort of taken us seriously saying, okay, we're not going to put that on the front page because we've asked you not to put it on the front page and we've asked you to talk about it in a certain way. But I think with the two celebrity suicides recently and the CDC reporting, there are more very useful conversations happening, and I think more awareness around the scope of the problem and also what people feel like needs to be studied and learned and um, what interventions do we need to test to, to get better at reducing these numbers. We'll talk more as uh, the program goes on about um, you know so the, the overall, but I want to ask uh, each of the people in the program, uh, ask Eugene Pearson, um, individual, you know, what... What can I do? You know, if I have a friend or family member, I suspect might be at risk. Right. So it's a challenge depending on you know your situation. Uh, but we would really hope you could take some real basic steps. So one of the first things is if you're suspecting this and somebody hasn't 
openly said they're talking about suicide or thinking about it, it's really important to ask. It doesn't put the idea into somebody's head. I think um, people were often scared of that, like, will this push somebody in that direction? Most people appreciate your asking, your concern. They'll answer you directly. If they don't, they don't. If they do, hopefully they will answer. We, we do know there are some people who don't want you to know, but for the most part, it's, it's a helpful thing to at least ask. If you feel like somebody is at very high risk imminently, like soon, you want to keep them safe. Um, they need to be away from um, very lethal means. Um, and that could be, you know, concern about access to a, a window at a high level or whatever it might be. Think about that. Be there and try to respect the person. Um, you know, it's really important to just be there with that person. Don't judge them. Don't try to talk them out of it necessarily in a way that's disrespectful. Um, and you want to keep them alive until they can get some help because what we do know is that periods of crises can ebb and flow. Like people will be better by the next day. So it's really important to just get them to hold on for a while. And I mentioned the importance of really good messaging from the press. Um, everybody should know um, that you can access the national hotline, the 800-273-TALK or 800-273-8255, the national lifeline. And there's also the crisis text line. Um, if you could text home 741-741. And you may have local um, numbers in Utah, too. That would be helpful. And then it's always helpful to just stay connected with that person and check in with them because we know social connections can be helpful. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, our thanks to Jane Pearson, suicide research expert with the National Institute of Mental Health in uh, Maryland. A uh, new report is out from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It shows a steady increase that uh, suicide is rising uh, all across the United States. In fact, only one state had a de decrease, a very slight decrease, over the years studied, and that was Nevada. Utah has uh, one of the highest uh, rates of increase in uh, suicide in the nation. We're uh, asking why. We're uh, talking about prevention and uh, what we can do. And uh, following a break, we'll uh, bring in uh, Dr. Craig Bryan, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at University of Utah. More following this break. This is Professor Beth Fouth for Bringing More to Life. What is empathy? It includes taking your aging parents' perspective and recognizing your parents' view as their truth, staying out of judgment, recognizing emotions and communicating that understanding to them. It is feeling with another person. It's being vulnerable to that same hurt or loneliness or loss they are expressing. Being empathetic takes time and effort. In our busy days as we balance our needs with the needs of our parents, it can be lost. Sharing feelings can bring more to their life in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a very serious problem, suicide. On the program today, 
Um, a couple of uh, recent celebrity deaths have shown a spotlight on this, and a new CDC report is out. 123 people uh, die of suicide every day in the U.S. It's the tenth leading cause of death for Americans, the number two killer of teens. And uh, between 1999 and 2016, according to the CDC report, um, suicide was uh, uh, increasing in all states except for Nevada. Utah had a, a big increase uh, in the rate of uh, suicide. And, of course, uh, we're asking uh, why and uh, talk about prevention, what could be done. We bring in uh, Dr. Craig Bryan, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies, University of Utah. Dr. Bryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, I wonder what you thought of this uh, new report out from the the CDC. It's uh, it's uh, you know n- n- not a just a sudden spike, but but long steady g- growth in the rates of suicide, numbers of suicide over those years uh, studied. Uh, I wonder what your uh, takeaway first is from that report is. Yeah, it was uh, certainly a discouraging uh, report, and you know I think it highlights what many of us in the suicide prevention community have increasingly been arguing for, which is that we need to approach suicide prevention in a new way, in a different way, because the sort of old way, the traditional ways that we've approached this very clearly aren't working, um, and we need to base these newer strategies on better science that's now emerging. What uh, what do we know? Um, do, I think there's a lot we don't know, right? Uh, still horizons to be studied. What what do we think we know about uh, the, the causes of suicide? Well, we know that you know the, the causes are complex. It's multifaceted. It's uh, not a single particular issue or variable or stressor that seems to lead to suicide. And I, I think that's actually something that many researchers are now starting to recognize. That, you know, in many ways, we've kind of understood this intuitively for a very long time, but in our drive and desire to achieve sort of a simple understanding and, and simple solutions to an otherwise complex problems, we, I think, sometimes become overly simplistic and, and we look for uh, one or two things or maybe a handful of variables that we think account for suicide. And now we're, we're starting to recognize that that's not the way to think about suicide, that there are probably different types of suicides or different types of suicidal individuals and uh, different groups of people get from point A to point B following different roads. And if we can acknowledge it and we can understand what those different pathways are, we'll be much, much better at helping people to stop that transition to suicidal behaviors and living better lives. The CDC report, if you just Google it up and they give their synopsis, uh, the title, Suicide Rising Across the U.S., and the subtitle, More Than a Mental Health Concern, and they say that 54% of people who died by suicide did not have a known mental health concern. Uh, condition as you said a complex problem do you think the cdc gets it right in their in their snapshot here yeah that's that's actually one of the these newer ideas that uh, many of us are talking about in the suicide prevention community where you know it's long been assumed that suicide is the outcome of uh, mental illness or mental health conditions and for some individuals who die by suicide that definitely is the case uh, but uh, many of us have questioned this long-held assumption of, you know, there's a statistic that has been cited for decades now that 90% of individuals who die by suicide have 
a mental health condition. And I think the CDC's report really emphasized that perhaps that's uh, perhaps that's not the case. Maybe there's a larger proportion of individuals who do not have a mental health condition. And um, as, as Dr. Pearson uh, in your previous interview mentioned, uh, probably some of those individuals, they have a mental health condition, just hasn't been diagnosed. But many of us also recognize that probably there are individuals who do not have a traditional mental health condition, but they're confronted with a lot of very serious, severe stressors and problems in life. And that CDC report really points it out. The, the group that did not have a mental health condition oftentimes had higher rates of relationship problems, financial problems, um, housing or legal problems, things like that. And so we need to be a little bit broader in how we understand the relationship between mental health conditions and suicide. So uh, maybe, more, maybe more complicated than, than we had previously thought, which... I guess in a way, places, you know, if I think about myself and I look around at my friends and family who, uh, you know, I may want to help if they are, are showing uh, signs. Uh, before, if I had uh, mental health to point to, then that's a little simpler. Now, you know, i got to worry about, uh, you know, romantic stress and housing stress and employment stress. Uh, it's It's more complicated, maybe more stressful for those who are trying to help. Well, I, I would say... Uh, I don't necessarily see it as more complicated. I would say uh, we're definitely looking at it in a different way because we've known, you know, for decades that, you know, relationship stress, um, financial strain, all of these are stressors that are correlated with suicide. Um, And so I think where we're kind of looking now is instead of, in essence, waiting for someone to manifest signs and symptoms of depression or PTSD or other mental health conditions, we should look much more broader, a little more upstream and say if someone's undergoing or experiencing a high level of stress in their lives, even if they aren't necessarily um, highly symptomatic of depression or some other mental health condition, it would still be good for us to help them, to reach out to them, to support them, and to strengthen our community and relationships with each other. Hmm. And that's a key, isn't it? The the, the relationships, higher, yes. I guess, uh, higher um, possibility of suicide if uh, if a person is alone. I'm guessing that doesn't have the person, another person to lean on. Yeah, yeah. We we know that um, a, a very powerful protector against suicide is strong relationships with others, um, and and critically, it's. It's very highly dependent upon our perceptions of relationships. So, you know, many many individuals who have lost you know loved ones to suicide will often kind of question, well, you know, they had family, they had friends, they had these relationships, uh, but what we're starting to learn is to the to the suicidal individual, they perhaps you know feel that maybe others would be better off without them, or perhaps they feel misunderstood or unheard, things like that. And so we're really starting to look now at how those relationships and what ways can they be protective and be helpful. Um, and one of the most important ways is by reaching out to others and having them feel on a day-to-day basis that there is someone available to help them, to support them, and critically, uh, someone who values and respects them. Um, reading uh, from a, a study, this is a previous study by uh, Dr. Douglas Gray there at the University of Utah. Uh, the university uh, or Utah State of Utah commissioned a study, especially about to young people. And uh, one of the results of that previous study, striking to me, 
uh, talking about relationships. For four of eight girls and young men, and for 41% of boys and young men, families could not suggest a single friend to interview. Um, so suggesting that that's a, that's a big risk factor, a lack of friendships. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, because that's, that's where individuals oftentimes feel isolated. And we know that uh, thought processes that are associated with suicide risk as well are feeling trapped, back in a, backed in a corner, um, that there's no way out, um, suicide's the only option, that, you know, there, there's no one who understands me, no one can help me to solve these problems. And so if those, those data that Dr. Gray uh, published fit exactly into how we now understand and are increasingly understanding the process by which a person gets to stress to suicidal behavior. What uh, what do we not know? What are the frontiers? What uh, what are you studying? What are other suicidologists uh, studying? Yeah, there's there are a number of I guess sort of big areas of research right now. Um, you know, I would say probably one of the I guess at the forefront, one of the, the biggest issues that many of us have been focusing on is uh, the this idea of ideation to action. And what that means is this concept of ideation to action. How does a person get from thinking about suicide to uh, attempting suicide or acting upon suicidal thoughts? And the reason why this is such a big focus right now amongst researchers is that, you know, we know that although most people, if not all people who attempt suicide, obviously had to think about it before uh, you know, acting upon or making the decision to attempt suicide. Most people who think about suicide do not attempt suicide. So something like 90 to 95% of those who consider suicide ultimately get better. They do not attempt suicide. They move on with their lives. And so a, a big push now for many of us researchers is, well, what distinguishes those two groups? Why is it that 90 to 95% of people who think about suicide do not make a suicide attempt. How are they able to overcome their suicidal thoughts? How? What are the processes by which they improve? What are the implications of that for treatment and, pre- and suicide prevention strategies? And then that smaller group, that five to ten percent, who do eventually attempt suicide. Again, what what's sort of going on uh, that gets them from point A to point B? And there's a, an explosion of research right now, really, really focused. On that, it's something that we are working on. It's a big focus of our researcher at the University of Utah. And we've uh, interestingly been able to find a lot of very important uh, pieces of information that people with purpose and meaning who feel connected with others, who um, engage in enjoyable, meaningful activities, even those that are under stress, facing adversity, things like that. This is a very, very important part of overcoming suicidal thoughts and reclaiming a purposeful, um, high-quality and happy life. So I guess you could do put, put some of that under the heading of resilience, right, uh, this, this idea? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's something that um, we've, we've very much been interested here at the university um, where, you know, we, we often find ourselves asking the question, why do people die by suicide or why do people kill themselves? And the, the question that we've really been very much influenced by is a slight tweak of that question, which is why do people choose to live when they want to kill themselves? Or why do people choose to live even when they're under a lot of stress? And this is where we have found that um, a lot of the interventions, a lot of the treatments that we are now finding are highly successful, that reduce and prevent suicidal behavior, 
are strongly associated with helping people to be resilient under duress and to recognize that this this is a tough time, but I'll get through it. I can be optimistic and hopeful about the future, and I'm going to be okay. Mm. What uh, uh, what are your findings that, uh, that help some people to to have that hope, that resilience, and others who uh, perhaps uh, along that uh, continuum from ideation to actually go ahead and, and take their own lives? Yeah, we've, we have uh, done most of our work on the treatment side, so with uh, how do we improve therapies for individuals at risk of suicide. And um, I would say one of the most important kind of consistent findings is that perspective-taking and helping the individual to gain perspective about what's happening to them in their lives, how they view themselves and view the world, seems to be absolutely key. Um, you know, when we're under extreme forms of stress, we start to experience tunnel vision, and, and all of us experience this. Whenever we are under pressure, when bad things are happening to us in life, we often find ourselves thinking in overly black-and-white terms. Um, it's harder for us to easily solve problems um, and, you know, once things get better, then we can kind of look in retrospect and kind of see things in a different way. And so what we're starting to find is that when individuals come into therapy, if we can sort of strengthen that capacity to kickstart their problem-solving ability, their ability to kind of take a step back and see the bigger picture, we find that that's an extremely potent part of helping individuals overcome suicidal thoughts, and it's a skill in many ways that we, we have to train them to do, and we coach them and we support them, we help them to practice. And, and what's truly fascinating, some of the newer research that we're doing, is that after a person goes through these processes, you know, they start to experience increased levels of purpose and meaning and happiness in their lives, such that we've got some new research coming out soon that about a year or so after a person has overcome their suicidal thoughts, their levels of happiness are just the same as the levels of happiness of individuals who have never thought about suicide in their lives. So in many ways, what we're starting to help suicidal people understand now is that there is a recovery process in about a year or two, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little faster. In essence, you'll be just as happy as you were before becoming suicidal and that there is light at the end of the tunnel and we can help you to get there. So you talk about this this continuum. A uh, person has, you know, not everyone expects it's a small percentage of those who have idea of suicide actually then commit suicide. Uh, what about on a personal level? If I have a friend or family member, what what signs to to look for? Yeah, so uh, one of the, the biggest signs that many of us are starting to recognize as being very important is, is the thought process of uh, the individual. And the thought process, of course, comes out by what they say. We can't read other people's minds, but you'll hear um, individuals say things like, I can't take this anymore. Uh, this is never going to get me better. Um, you know, people would be better off without me. I, I deserve to be punished. I mess everything up, so on and so forth. And what, what's key here is that they aren't necessarily saying, I want to die or um, you know, I want to kill myself or I'm thinking about suicide, but they have these very, very extreme negative uh, sort of views of themselves and others in the world, and it's very self-critical, you know, self-deprecatory, things like that. 
And those are very strong indicators that a person's not doing well. And so listen for that. We call it the coded language of suicide. More than half of people who die by suicide do not actually tell anyone that they're thinking about suicide. Um, however, they will say these other things, these, these very uh, extreme negative statements. Um, some other signs that we're starting to recognize very that are very important include agitation. So they, they're restless. They talk about an inability to sleep. Um, kind of feeling that their mind is racing, that they can't control their thoughts, those sorts of things. If, if you see these signs, that would be the time to kind of listen, uh, listen without judgment, and encourage them to seek out help uh, from a qualified and well-trained mental health professional. I'm just going to ask, what what uh, should the conversation look like and sound like? Uh, I guess I urge them to, to seek help. What can I, I think we're sometimes afraid of saying certain things to a person we think might be suicidal. What, what should we say? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the, the best things that we have learned to say is to ask them to tell their story, which uh, sometimes people say, well, what do you mean? Uh, but, uh, for instance, we're, the research that we do now with suicidal individuals, um, it, it used to be that we kind of advocated for, you know, almost like interview them, right? Ask them, are you depressed? Are you feeling hopeless? Do you have thoughts about suicide? And, and those are certainly important questions to ask, but we're finding that uh, the conversations seem to go a lot better when we're not quite so um, kind of like an interviewer or an interrogator, but instead we open up and say, tell me the story about what happened today, or um, it sounds like things haven't been going very well for you uh, Tell me how you got to this point or what's going on and encouraging them to openly tell their story by just asking things like, you know, and what happened next and then what happened and um, at that time, what were you thinking and, you know, what did you decide to do where we're curious. Uh, we're just seeking to understand without judgment, um, without any, any, any kind of addition of, um, you know, our own agenda. And as the person tells their story, what we have found is that increases their sense of trust, uh, increases their likelihood to tell us even more uh, kind of secretive thoughts or feelings that they've had, which is exactly what we want. And then once they've told their story and they feel like they've been heard, we encourage people uh, to then transition with a simple question, which is, you know, how can I help you right now? What can I do? And recognize that there are sort of different stages. There might be long-term goals or long-term ways we can help, such as getting them into treatment or supporting them to find a good mental health professional. But right now, it might be something as simple as, you know, can I just help you with chores or errands or tasks to help alleviate some of the stress to support you in the short term while we start working towards these longer-term solutions to what you're facing? Hmm. Uh, we're talking, if you just joined us, uh, about suicide. Uh, the, the rates are going up across the United States and in every state except Nevada. In Utah, the, the rates have uh, increased uh, quite alarmingly. And, uh, of course, so we're talking about suicide prevention, uh, the underlying cause is what we can do. Right now we're talking with Dr. Craig Bryan, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah. I want to get into talking about uh, suicide among veterans um, and uh, risk groups. And uh, when we come back from a break, we'll take right now, I want to talk about the stigma. And I want to quote, uh, this is Petula Dvorak in the Washington Post. 
She said, uh, uh, those left behind, suicide often don't receive casseroles or cards, flowers or fundraisers, hugs or visits, obituaries too are evasive, resorting to euphemisms such as died in his home or died suddenly. Um, unless it's Kate Spade or Anthony Bourdain, finally an opening to talk about suicide. And so she goes on to uh, to say that we need to confront this and uh, overcome the stigma and, uh, and talk about it. We're trying to do our part here on the program today. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. love to hear your story. 800-826-1495 is our toll-free number. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com is our email. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 2018 Cache Valley Cruise-In, July 5th, 6th, and 7th in Logan, Utah, at the Cache County Fairgrounds featuring the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on Friday, July 6th. Registration and admission ticket information available at Lee's or cvcacruisin.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, is CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, really what it seems? CSR is a fundamentally subversive doctrine. We speak with the chief of generosity at one of the most charitable companies in America. We don't make lipstick. We make medicines and vaccines. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Whether visiting a resort near Bear Lake or hiking around Capitol Reef near Torrey Teasdale, Utah Public Radio goes with listeners wherever they go. Your company's message can too. Find out how by calling Utah Public Radio at 800-826-1495. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, according to a new uh, report from Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, some 45,000 Americans died by suicide in 2016. The vast majority of states saw increases in the rates of suicide between 1999 and 2016. Suicide's the leading cause of, uh, of death in Utah for young people ages 10 to uh, 17. And the state suicide rate for all ages is more than 60% above the national average. So we're talking about this on the program. Previously, we talked with Jane Pearson, suicide research expert with the National Institute for Mental Health in Maryland. And right now, we're talking with Craig Bryan, assistant professor of clinical psychology and executive director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at University of Utah. Dr. Bryan, I want to talk about the, the stigma. And a quote again from Petula Dvorak, writing in the Washington Post, um, we still don't want to talk about it, she said, even though 123 people die of suicide every day. Those left behind uh, don't receive casseroles or cards, flowers or fundraisers, hugs or visits. Obituaries too are evasive, resorting to euphemisms such as died in his home or died suddenly. She goes on to say, cancer? We'll beat it. Give me a pink ribbon. Drunken driving, posters, billboards, legislation, police checkpoints. Drag that wrecked car in front of the high school during prom week. In your face. Heart disease? Let's get that cute, healthy heart mascot to dance around the convention floor. Wear your red dresses, ladies. But suicide? Shh, she says. Uh, so I wonder, if, uh, do you think that's changing? Uh, do you think, uh, I think there's, still, there's, a, there's a stigma you, you do see in the obituaries. They don't, they don't come right out and say it. You don't. And people, I think, are uncomfortable talking to families whose uh, family members have committed suicide. Oh, yeah, that, there definitely is, and, and that's something that even uh, myself as a suicide prevention uh, researcher, when um, you, know, you read obituaries uh, periodically or hear of someone's untimely sudden death, and um, you know, a lot of times you, you kind of read how it's described, and you, you kind of wonder is this sort of the coded language you don't know for sure. And um, 
in in that does I think uh, that has a very pronounced effect on the family members, the loved ones, and those who are left behind. And this the reason why I think this is so important. Um, you know, this sort of fear that we have of talking about suicide is that, of course, it, it serves as a barrier um, to helping those in need, um, which is you know potentially life threatening. It's a life threatening barrier because we are now developing some remarkably effective treatments, uh, not only for suicidal thoughts and reducing suicidal behaviors, but as well as a lot of the treatments or a lot of the conditions that oftentimes confer increased risk. So PTSD is another area of research that I focus on a lot, and we're starting to learn that there are a handful of treatments. Um, There aren't many, um, but there are multiple treatments that are remarkably effective, highly potent for reducing PTSD, and our research is showing those treatments also reduce suicide risk. Um, And such that individuals who receive the therapy no longer have PTSD, and they can live meaningful, good lives, lives that they've been wanting to live, uh, for a long time afterwards, but if we're not willing to talk about these treatments, if we're not willing to talk about suicide, um, especially in the aftermath of suicide death, it, it makes it really hard for people to know how to find these potentially life-saving interventions. I think one of the things we worry about, especially in the media, is contagion, right? Clusters. Uh, we do. We just had one uh, in, in uh, Harriman area. Uh, especially among you know, young people, is that a concern? How do we combat that and you talk about it in the right way? Right, I, and I think the the concern about contagion is that we often, uh, you know, kind of use language where you know someone has died by suicide, and this, and we kind of fall into these old cliches of, you know, um, kind of get help, um, go find um, support. Where it's, it's sort of this this notion of. This is a condition, um, a health condition, which it is, um, but there's there's not really much we can do about it. You've got to call a hotline. You've got to go to treatment. You've got to go somewhere else to fix the problem, um, which, yes, that's helpful, but there hasn't really been this sort of shared sense of community around suicide prevention where when the media talks about it, it isn't about this is our problem. It's more of this is a problem that this person had and, um, perhaps it's going to affect their families, but suicide affects all of us. Um, suicide is something that we're all responsible for preventing. And I think the other thing that we don't do a very good job of talking about in the media is the, what a few of us call the post-suicidal life. Um, you know, what happens after you're suicidal, after you recover, after you overcome the problems and the challenges and the adversity that you're facing in life. Um, and, that, and that's very different from how we talk about other health conditions. You mentioned cancer. A lot of the stories that we have about cancer talk about recovery, about the you know the good things that people do, the meaningful aspects of their lives after they've received chemotherapy or surgery or whatever treatment they've received for cancer. Um, but it, with suicide, we don't talk about that, and that's tragic because, as I mentioned before, the vast majority of people who think about suicide do not attempt suicide. They don't die. They recover and they lead good, meaningful lives afterwards. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, looking at it long term, and and maybe you know celebrating positives. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's you know if you talk with um, suicide attempt survivors, uh, if you talk with others who have lived experience or they thought about suicide, 
uh, and they've received successful treatment or perhaps uh, things just changed in their life where they didn't necessarily have to go to treatment, but conditions changed and they improved. Um, and I think we need to hear those stories because we need to really kind of change public perceptions about suicide as, you know, something that I think right now a lot of us have this sense of there's not much we can do about it. And I think the CDC report has kind of led people to become a little more hopeless and despondent about suicide prevention when in reality we're starting to learn a lot about how to help people live good, meaningful lives. Um, it's just that right now that information is not you know, widely available to the public. So the CDC report shows a, a long, steady increase in the rates of suicide numbers of suicide over about a 15-year period that they studied. Um, you, I mean, you sound hopeful. Do you, do you think as a nation, as a state, we'll be able to get a handle on this? Numbers will start going down? I, I think I think we will. Um, I, I'm hoping, of course, it will be sooner than later, and I don't know when, when the turning point will be. Uh, but like, like for right now, uh, or for example, right now here in Utah, we've uh, been working with the state to fund uh, a, a lot of trainings in suicide prevention methods. So not, not again, the traditional stuff, like I said before, the traditional stuff very clearly isn't working. If the traditional stuff was working, the, the numbers would not be going up. They'd be going down. Um, but these newer innovations that we've been developing here at the University of Utah as well as other places around the country where we can now go out and we can teach these methods to licensed mental health professionals. Uh, we've been working uh, with uh, juvenile justice uh, staff and employees here in the state of Utah because um, in our youth population, our, our youth suicides here in Utah, the majority had some kind of contact with the legal system or with the criminal justice system. And so we're now starting to take these interventions, even to non-healthcare providers, in training them how to help someone in crisis, how to help uh, someone improve the quality of their lives when they're experiencing stress, in, the, in a very similar way that we teach CPR to lots of lots of people within the community, even though most of us are not surgeons, we're not cardiologists or, you know, physicians, we know what to do if someone's heart stops beating, how to save their lives until we can get them connected to a higher level of care. And that's what we're doing now in the state of Utah. So it's, it's kind of just a matter of time, I think, before we hit that critical mass where we'll start to see the numbers level off and then, of course, eventually they'll start to go down again. I wonder, so you go out and give this training, increased uh, funding for the training. Uh, I imagine we've talked about a few of the bullet points there. I wonder if uh, there are any others that, uh, you know, give us a three-minute crash course in this this training so everybody in the audience can, can have this. I, I guess the most yeah. effective, you go to the training, but what uh, what should we, what would you have everyone know? Sure. So, um, so we actually talked a little bit about part of what we do in the training, which is how to talk to someone in distress. And so... Um, I mentioned before, you know, the, the kind of the, the classic or traditional way was to ask them a bunch of questions. Are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling hopeless? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Um, and what we're starting to train people to do now is take this more storytelling approach. Tell me the story about what's going on right now. Tell me the story about the day you wanted to kill yourself and eliciting, in essence, that understanding, being very curious and non-judgmental to get that person to build trust in us. And once we have that trust, saying, what can we do to help? Um, and, and one of the crisis procedures that we're finding very effective 
Um, it's called a crisis response plan. Um, but we go through several steps where we help the individual to identify, well, how do you know when you're getting to this overwhelmed level of stress? Not, not everyday stress, but, you know, dangerous type of stress. And once we figure out what your personal warning signs or indicators are, what are the things that you can do to manage your stress? So going for a walk, watching a favorite TV show, playing games, uh, you know, playing with the dogs or pets, things like that. Things that elevate our mood, that help us to feel better, even though it doesn't necessarily get rid of the problem, it helps to kind of level us off. Uh, we then talk and talk with them about their reasons for living, what gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in life, and tell us stories about that. So your family, friends, um, aspirations for the future, other things that when we talk about, we light up, and we feel better about life and who we are. We then identify sources of social support, like friends, family members, coworkers, people who are fun to be with, who support you in times of need, who you can call or text or email or reach out to when you're feeling overwhelmed. And then finally, we make sure the individual has access to professional crisis services, whether it's a mental health professional whom they're seeing, um, crisis hotlines, um, you know, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. We also have some hotlines here Utah, and then also as a final step, the emergency procedure in a, in a severe life-threatening crisis, going to a hospital um, or calling 911 to get emergency services. And uh, I guess to throw in here, the, the National Lifeline, according to Dr. Pearson, 800-273-TALK, 800-273-TALK. Um, uh, have this email, put out an appeal to our listeners to tell us uh, your story. This email is coming from Steve. He says, I'm no expert, but when my cousin hanged himself a few years ago, it seemed a purely impulsive act of anger and depression. He'd had a recent breakup with his girlfriend and may also have been, though I don't know for sure, in financial straits. Had Paul been thinking more clearly, he would have seen past the breakup and recognized that the family would help him get through whatever financial issues he faced. It seemed then that, uh, and does still today, that his suicide was mostly a terrible act of impulse. And were uh, suicide not irrevocable, my cousin Paul would have worked through his problems and still be with us today. Uh, that's Steve. Uh, sorry for your loss, uh, Steve, and very sorry about uh, Paul. That's, I guess, a, a tunnel vision that uh, that some people uh, get if they, if they just see that uh, you know help is on the way. Maybe, uh, maybe it would not have happened. Yeah, yeah. It's you know it's it's interesting because I, I, I'm glad that he brought up this notion of. Um, impulsivity, because this is something that we're really learning a lot about with suicide. And that, that has been sort of the way we've traditionally thought about it, is that it's an impulsive act. And um, we're, we're starting to now question, maybe it isn't impulsive, although the, the length of time from the final decision to, to kill oneself to actually acting upon it sometimes is only a few minutes or you know less than an hour. But there oftentimes is a buildup, a, a lot of contemplation, um, thinking about, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? What are the pros and cons, kind of the weighing of the options? Um, and this is where, uh, I mentioned before, where we'd want to be alert to things such as, um, you know, statements, I can't take this anymore, it's never going to get any better, I'm overwhelmed, you know, things like that. And uh, But to your point as well about that tunnel vision, yeah, that's I, I think that's exactly what was happening here is in that moment when he made that final decision. You know, my guess, what we've learned from others who have attempted but survived, um, you know, instances like this is they often felt at the moment like, yeah, I, I have to do this now. Um, I must, uh, I must act. I can't take this anymore. I can't tolerate this pain or this stress. 
And they do oftentimes minimize or overlook the fact that others could be helpful for them and are more than happy to support. Uh, just uh, about 30 seconds left. What would you like to say finally on this uh, subject, Dr. Brown? I, I think my, my final thought, I'd like to reiterate the point I made several times, which is that um, you know it's important to recognize that when we're stressed out, when we are faced with hard times, um, sometimes we'll think about killing ourselves. And the important thing to keep in mind is that, in general, uh, the stressful time will pass and that we're starting to find now that after the stressor, after the suicidal thoughts, a person can recover, and they become happy in life, they have purpose and meaning, um, and what we want to do is help someone to get through that tough time, to ride the wave so that they can realize um, that life that they want to live afterwards. Well, we've been talking uh, about this very important subject with Craig Bryan, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology and Executive Director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at University of Utah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And our thanks uh, to our previous guest, Jane Pearson, suicide research expert, National Institute of Mental Health in Maryland. Keep those emails coming, upraxcess at gmail.com. And on Monday, when we return, we'll be talking with travel writer Porter Fox. Uh, he spent three years exploring 4,000 miles of the border between Maine and Washington, traveling by canoe, freighter, car, and foot. The book's called Northland. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 2018 Cache Valley Cruise in July 5th, 6th, and 7th in Logan, Utah at the Cache County Fairgrounds featuring the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on Friday, July 6th. Registration and admission ticket information available at Lee's or cvcacruisin.com. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.